Have a seat, have a seat. If you have a Bible, uh, jump to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this, this evening. If we haven't met personally, my name is Kevin Bear. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayou City Tomball. And um, man, it has been a, a crazy, crazy week. And as we even jump into this text of Scripture, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to something that is so beyond what we can do naturally. We need something profound, and we need the power of his presence. So I'm going to read for us this passage, and, uh, and I'm going to spend a few moments in, in prayer, um, but a little bit longer in prayer, because, uh, gosh, we need the Lord to move in amongst uh, my heart, our hearts, and his midst. Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 43, says this, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We pray. Lord, I just want to lift up right now um, each person here. We come from different places. We come from different uh, perspectives. And, and, Lord, we need your spirit to bring unity to us. We need your spirit to make our hearts alive to you. We need your spirit... Um, to make us into the people you want us to be. And Lord, no sermon I preach or no song that we sing can make us into the people we need to be to serve you. Amen? Lord, we need your spirit to work in our hearts. We need your spirit to transform our lives. We need your spirit to make us into the men and women we need to be so that we can live the life you've called us to live so that more and more people in this community might know you, Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide our time, that you would guide our hearts, so that you would make us into your kingdom people. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past uh, several um, weeks, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And in looking at the Sermon on the Mount, there's something that Jesus is calling us to do, something that Jesus is calling us to be. And he's calling us to be radical. Last week I entitled the message uh, Radical Love Part 1 and this week I'm calling it Radical Love Part 2 because that's what Jesus is actually asking us to be. People that love radically. And if you look all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been stepping on our toes in different ways. Um, he tells us to not only should we not murder but we shouldn't be angry with one another. Um, he tells us that we should not commit adultery but also that we shouldn't lust, um, have lust in our heart. He deals with divorce. He talks about marriage in that section. Um, he talks about our oaths, that we need to keep our word. Then he talks last week about um, how we respond when someone um, is, is, is against us in some way um, that we are, are interacting with. And this week, he calls us to really do the impossible, to have a heart change in how we view people that seemingly are against us. He says, I want you to love your enemies. And I don't know about you, but if someone is against me, 
I don't know that love is my first emotion, right? I don't know that I naturally respond that way. In fact, I know for a fact I do not naturally respond that way. In order to live this life that he's calling us to live, we've got to have something working in us that's dramatically different, something new, something revolutionary. And it's something that the, only the Holy Spirit can produce. And each one of these teachings, what Jesus has been doing is contrasting his teaching from the teaching of the Pharisees. He said, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. And he begins this section the same way. He says in verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that quote is, is he's actually quoting Pharisees' teaching. Um, they thought that you should love your neighbor. And they took that from Leviticus 18, where it says that you should indeed love your neighbor. Leviticus 19, 18. But then the Pharisees added a different teaching to that. They said you should additionally hate your enemies. And that's actually nowhere in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees were adding this, this incorrect teaching into the teaching that Jesus uh, addresses. And he said, Jesus says, I, okay, that, that's not what my people are supposed to be like. That's not the heart of the people I'm looking to create. He's looking to create something radically different. And I chose that word radical purposefully because the word radical means in Latin, the root. And what Jesus is interested in, not changing merely the external, he's interested in changing the internal. He's interested in going right to your heart and making your heart completely different, that we would respond in our context with a completely different perspective than everyone else that interacts in your community. So whether you're a high schooler in, in going to high school or you're junior high or a middle schooler, that your hearts and your actions would look radically different all the way from the core. And if you're an adult interacting in the working world or wherever you are, that we would be radically different people. That we would be people that love even our enemies. And there's three perspectives that have to be shifted within us if we're actually going to be that type of people. And three perspectives that Jesus really lines out in this section. The first perspective is this, a, per, a change in our perspective on people. Secondly, a change in our perspective on winning. And thirdly, a change in perspective of what the goal of life is. And so the first transition, or first perspective shift that Jesus gives is our perspective on people. In Matthew 5, 44 through 45, he says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The first shift he wants us to have is this, a shift in how we see people. And the perspective change is this, first of all, that we have never interacted with a mere mortal. As we interact with people, as people cut you off on the highway, as you have to stand six feet distance from someone at the store, we don't rub shoulders with mere mortals. We rub shoulders with immortal, eternal beings. Every person you interact with isn't just a person that's in your way. They're actually eternal. This is what C.S. Lewis says. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. C.S. Lewis says, you have never interacted with just a person. They're eternal. 
And that person is either going to spend eternity with God or eternity separate from God. And regardless of where they are on that spectrum, they are people with dignity, value, and worth. They are not primarily an enemy. They're an eternal creation created by God. And that's a shift. They're not my enemy. I won't see them as my enemy. I will see their potential and I will see their future. I would love to see people more like God sees people. To interact with people as Christ interacts with people. First of all, to change our perspective, no person is a mere mortal. But secondly, no person is my enemy. I will not see people as my enemy. Uh, when I, uh, I lived for 14 years in College Station. And I did ministry among the Aggies, which was, which was fun, but a little bit awkward. Because I went to undergrad to the University of Texas. And so people were very concerned about me. They're just like, okay, Kevin, you're going to go to Aggie land and you're going to spend time there. Now I was following my wife as she was doing veterinary school there. And like, Kevin, uh, it's going to be a little bit awkward. Are you sure you can minister among the Aggies? And I said, you know, Aggies need Jesus too. You know, like that's kind of my line. And Aggies love that when you say that to them. They're just like, the longhorn telling me I need Jesus. Like they hate it, but it was great. And so I'd be like, Aggies need Jesus too. And so I get there and I didn't really grasp the culture until I, until I go. And I went to um, a first baseball game with a friend of mine, Jerry. And he takes me to the baseball game. And at the beginning of every baseball game, they play the Aggie war hymn. And if you've never heard the Aggie war hymn, there's a point where you, you stand, you put your one leg over another, you put your arms around one another. And there's a point in the song when they sing about the destruction of my people, of Longhorns. You stand there and they start singing about saw varsity's horns off. And that's a long chorus that they're very excited about singing. And, and, and I get to that point in the song and I, like, I step away. I'm like, hey buddy, uh, I cannot sing this song. You're singing about the destruction of my people. I will cheer on your team, but I will not saw my people off. And, and, so, and so he says that, he goes, he goes oh, I never really thought about the song uh, like that, but yeah, like, we're, we're, we're against you. And I said, okay, Jerry, but, but let's be honest. You, I know you don't like UT, but if UT is playing tech, right, like you're not going to tell me you're going to cheer for tech. And he's like, that is the hardest day of the year for me. I mean, if somehow the ground could open up and swallow both of them, that would be the best. And I'm like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And, and so what's crazy is when you interact in that environment, they, they've got you as an enemy. And just by walking in there, you're a bit of an enemy. Like, Kevin, how are you interacting? And I was like, I, was like, I refuse to see them as an enemy. I will never paint them in that picture. And as Christians, we never face a human enemy. There are no human enemies. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know how God sees people? He says, it's like they're blinded. It's like they can't see me. It's like they can't see God and they don't know what I'm like and they don't know what it's like to have a relationship with me. It's like they can't see the truth. And when someone can't see the truth, I don't shame them because they can't see it. I say, God, will you open their eyes so that they might see God rightly? Will you change their perspective? Because every person that's blind has the potential to receive sight. And that's what God does. Paul, 
the writer of much of the New Testament, was an enemy of Jesus. He held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. He literally oversaw the death of Christians. And he's on the road walking and he's blinded by a light. And he falls to the ground and he goes, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he changes Paul's complete trajectory in life. He turns an enemy into a friend. An enemy into a missionary. One of the most successful missionaries our world has ever seen. I'm going to change you and, and I know you are against me, but I'm going to make you for me. I'm going to make you an ambassador for me. He can literally change the trajectory, trajectory of someone's life. So we see that no person is a mere mortal. No person is your enemy. They can be transformed by Jesus. And thirdly, it means this, that we pray for those who are against us. We pray for those who persecute us. Let me tell you what, prayer for your enemy will change your heart. Several years ago, I had a uh, pastor friend uh, sharing, with, sharing this story. Um, he was, he's a, a very good communicator, and so he'd travel uh, communicating at all these different conferences or whatever, and so he was traveling around. And every time he would go speak, they would say, hey, great job. Um, and then they would tell him the name of this other pastor. And they're like, hey, you did such a great job. Hey, do you know so-and-so? Like, he's great. And, and, and so every time he would give, give a sermon and then they'd bring up the same person. Hey, have you heard of this other person? He's awesome. And so he felt his heart started getting hard towards this pastor he didn't even know. And he's like, why, why am I just getting mad at, at him? And, just, and so it almost like became like an enemy. And he says, what, the thing that dislodged that, that hurtfulness in his heart was when he started praying for him. And so he started literally praying for this pastor. He started praying for his family. He started praying for his time with the Lord. He started praying that he would be more and more used powerfully by God. And he said, I'm not going to let this get a foothold in my heart. I'm going to start blessing and praying for this person. Even though I feel this jealousy raging its way in me. Man, that's how you overcome. Abraham Lincoln says this, the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. How do, we, how do we have a perspective on people that says, I, you're not my enemy. I refuse to put you in that category. I'm going to make you a friend. The first is this, that we had to change our perspective on people. But secondly, that we change our perspective on winning. Jesus says it this way. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on good. And sends rain on the just, on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have in heaven? Do not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same. And if you greet those only your who are only your brothers, what more do you have than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He says, I want you to have a perspective change on what it means to win in life. Um, when my, my son Micah would play soccer... Uh, when he was little, it's always hilarious watching little kids play soccer because it's mob ball, right? So the ball goes to one area and all the kids run to that single location. And as they run to that single location, they, they kind of kick the ball back and forth and all of a sudden, boom, the ball gets out of the crowd and you'll see some, the, one of the fast kids just running after the ball. Now here's the funny part about kids soccer. You never know who's on what team really or which direction they need to be going 
And so one kid will get the ball go and he'll start running after that ball and going, going. The only way to know which way the kid is supposed to go is to look at the fans, like the parents. Because they've kept score and they know what their kids should do. And so they're standing there. And so I remember watching this one kid chase after the ball, going hard at it. And he's going towards that goal. And I just see the parents on the sidelines going, no, no. And this kid's like, yes, yes. Goes, kicks the ball on the goal, is celebrating. All the parents are like, oh, no, right? As you just scored on your own team. Christians, many of us are putting points on the wrong board because we don't know what it looks like to win in God's kingdom. And what God is saying is this, I want, you to sh- I want to show you what it looks like to win here. I want to show you what it looks like to love radically. He says, I want you to be sons of your father. See, sons look like their dad. Uh, my dad has been, my parents have been coming um, every now and then to these 11 o'clock services. Uh, they live in the, in the Katy area. And if you were to see my dad in person, you would say, you look like Kevin. Or more rightly, you would say, Kevin, you look like your dad. Kids look like their parents. And if we're God's kids, we should look like him. Like we, we, should, we should use our resources like God uses his resources. And so first of all is this, how do we use our, our power? How do we use our influence It says that he, God, causes the sun to rise on evil and on good and sends rain on just and the unjust. Can you imagine for a moment that you had the power over nature? Like it was in your hands. Like you control nature. You could cause the sun to rise on who you like or to set on who you don't like. You could pick a little dark area and say, you were mean to me, you said something mean, you will be in blackness for now, and everyone else around you will have sunshines. Or you could send clouds, right, on people. Like, I don't like you, it will rain on you today. You know, just like a little Olaf cloud going over people. Like, imagine if you could control nature, if you had that power, how would you use it? Would you use it to bless or would you use it for something else? Several years ago, there's a game that came out on the iPhone. It's called a Pocket God. And so you could be God, and you had this little island, and you could do whatever you wanted with this little island group of people. And really, the only thing you could do with these people is to hurt them, right? So you would have your, uh, you could like send lightning down, you could cause it to rain, you could pick them up and throw them off your island, like you could do all these different things in your little pocket God game. And, and I'm like, I'm like, this is like so weird. You can only like be mean to people. And I have some friends of mine going, yeah, yeah, it's just like God. And I'm like, no, that's nothing like God. <laughs> like, God doesn't do that. God doesn't use his power to wound. God uses his power to bless. He causes the sun to, to shine on those who will never love him. He gives breath into the lungs of people that will not use that breath to bless him. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on people that don't, will never love him because your God, our God, is a giver. He's generous, and we are called to look like him. When someone is against us, he's saying, how do you win here? You love them. You look to bless them. And secondly, we do it through kindness. That's how we win. Romans 2, 4 says this, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance? It's his kindness 
kindness that changes people's hearts. And what's, what's so funny in this section is he says, do you not know that even tax collectors love those who love them? He's like, if you just love people who love you, what reward do you have? All throughout the Bible, it talks about rewards. Paul talks about many rewards. He talks about them as crowns that we receive. There's crowns of faith, crowns of perseverance. There's crowns that believers receive as rewards. And and Jesus says, like, what reward in heaven are you going to receive if you are doing the same thing as everyone else? He says, even the tax collectors do this. Now, that doesn't strike us. But to be a tax collector in the ancient world, particularly Jewish people, this is what it meant. That that you bought the right to gain taxes, extort money from your people. The way the Roman government would maintain power was to collect money from these different regions to pay their military to enforce their will. And so tax collectors were funding the oppressive military regime to hold them captive. So tax collectors were universally hated by the Jewish people. What's so ironic is Matthew, the author of, our, of this New Testament book, was a tax collector. And so it's so funny. He's like, even tax collectors, hey, hey, what? I mean, I, that's, that's me. He's like, no, no, even tax collectors love those who love them. But that's not what my people are about. There's no reward if you do what everyone else does. God's people love those people that are against them. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. We are called to love And love changes hearts. Corey Tinboom says, You never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. What's winning in God's kingdom? It's when we love those that are ill deserving, we love those who are against us. We don't overcome evil with evil but we overcome evil with good. There's a perspective change on people, a perspective change on winning, and thirdly, a perspective change on the goal of life. Verse 48 says it this way. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, the standard of God's design for us isn't what we do to one another. The standard of God is actually perfection. He says, I want you to be my kids that love perfectly. And this is what this radical love looks like. It's it's I love even my enemies. I bless even those that are against me. I have this standard of love. And we are called to be that picture into the world. That that word uh, perfect means mature, complete. Maturity, Christian maturity means that we love, we look like God. William Barclay says it this way, man was created to be like God. The characteristics of God in this universe in this, is this universal benevolence, this unconquerable goodwill, this constant seeking of the highest good for every man, 
This great characteristic of God is a love to the saint and sinner alike. No matter what men do to him, God seeks nothing but their highest good. We're called to look like Jesus. The goal of the Christian life isn't to be better than the person next to you. It's to look like his perfect son. And but if we're honest with ourselves, it's difficult because if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, the, the cultural climate that we're in pulls us in a different direction. Um, years ago, uh, we would go to uh, Schlitterbahn, like the water park. And the, the thing that I loved about Schlitterbahn is the lazy river, right? The lazy river, you just hop in there, you get in a tube or you get in a float and that river just kind of takes you around and you just kind of float and enjoy the time. They're like, do you want to go to this ride? Be like, I'll be see you when I come around again. You know, just like sitting in that lazy river. But every now and then we would try to swim against the current, right? Like we would jump in and be like, try to swim and, and it would be straining and it would be difficult because it is so much easier to go with the flow than to fight the current. In our culture, in our world, there is a current pulling us away from God's design. There's a current pulling us away from love. And it's difficult. It's difficult to resist that. It's difficult to go against that flow. And if we're honest with ourselves, in this political climate right now, what we don't see are two sides looking to love and honor one another. We see more and more complications, more and more an unwillingness to love and serve one another. And God says, my people don't do that. My people work to go against the cultural pull, to love deeply. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body to make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I too may be disqualified. He says, I work. God works in me, but I work so that when those people come against me, I don't respond in hate, I respond in love. I reach out to encourage them. And when God's people do that, when Christians do that, when they display this radical love, it causes an unbelieving world to stop and stare. Several years ago, um, I was reading a book called um, The Call by Oz Guinness. And in it, he talks about a, a family during, um, during the Holocaust that displayed this type of radical love. They were French. They were French Huguenots. Um, two women, Andre Tromé and his wife, Magna Tromé. And during the, the night of the fog, when the Germans were coming in and taking a lot of Jewish people and, and taking them into these concentration camps, certain Christians resisted that. One of these families was, um, were the Tromés. And at one point, the police found out that Andre Tromé was resisting the capture of these Jewish people. And so they sent police to his house to arrest him and take him away. Here's what happened. Andre Tremé had been arrested, but typically, however, Magna Tremé invited the two policemen to have dinner with them. Friends were later incredulous and upset with her. How could you bring yourself to sit down to eat with these men who were about to take your husband away, perhaps to his death? How could you be so forgiving and so decent to them? And she kind of waved it off and said, hey, it was late. 
They were hungry. We needed to eat. When you serve those people that are taking your husband away, that is a dramatic change. That is something deep in the heart that is remarkable. It's caused the world to stop and stare. And even more recently, in our culture, in our history, there was a church, an African-American church in South Carolina, where there were, they were victims of, of a shooting, and several people died. And the world is wondering, how are these Christians going to respond when, when someone has come against you like that? One article in the Washington Post describes it this way. The relatives of the people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, earlier this week, were able to speak directly to the accused gunman Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, says Nadine Collier, a daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said in the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. When the news outlets saw Christians respond in this radical love, they couldn't believe it. You guys lived through it. When Christians respond like Christ, the world is amazed. I just want to close um, with an example that Paul gives to us. What does it look like to be Christians that see an enemy and say, I refuse to see you that way? I'm going to move in love over hate. How do we do that practically? I'll give you a couple ideas, and I'm going to read this in closing. The, the f- first is this um, when it comes to our political climate, if we can say to ourselves, I refuse to see you as my enemy. You may differ with me on policy, but I will not treat you like an enemy. I have a new perspective on people. It also means that I have a new scoreboard. There's a different way to win. How do we win? We love people into the kingdom of God. And what is the goal? The goal is Christ-likeness. That I would look more and more like Jesus, and I would love more and more like Jesus. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he is praying for the people that are nailing him to the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's our hero. And that's how we live. If I was to give you one major application, it'd be from, to read Romans 12, 9 through 21, and meditate on that. So I'm going to read it for us, then we'll close in worship. Paul says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who meet. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He won't know what's happening. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pray. Lord, thank you that you are the perfect model of a loving son who reflects a loving father. Jesus, thank you that you lived a perfect life, the life that we could not live. And we may try to live perfectly and we know this side of heaven, we will never reach perfection, but by your grace, we will look more and more like your son as your spirit works in us. And Lord, my prayer is that we would be people here at Bayou City that look more and more like Jesus, that our hearts would be more and more transformed. And Lord, when we are hurt, when we respond in love, it would cause the watching world to turn their heads and say, what, what's different about you? And because of it, they would come to faith in you, Jesus Christ. I lift up each person here. Help us to look more and more like your son, to forgive those that we're seeing as enemies, to respond in love. And we pray.